All right. I did not record anything up until this point. So, uh, Isaiah chapter number six is where we're going to start tonight. Isaiah chapter number six. And we are going to discuss theology tonight. Theology. So we spent the first three weeks, um, or the last three weeks rather, talking about bibliology, which is study of the Bible. Theology is the study of God. So we're going to look at the study of God tonight. And we're going to get started in Isaiah chapter number 6. The Bible says this in verse number 1, familiar passage. In the year that King Uzziah died, I also saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face. With twain he covered his feet. And with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Let's ask for the Lord's help, and then we're going to dive into this doctrine of theology tonight. Father, thank you for the opportunity to give us, be able to open your word. I pray, God, that you would use this time in your word to strengthen us and encourage us as we learn more about God. Help us, Lord, to know you. And God, we thank you for what you're going to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a big difference between knowing about something or someone and actually knowing them. You know, um, whenever you are uh, doing marriage counseling, whenever I do marriage counseling, we're going to be doing marriage counseling here very soon with a couple. And uh, whenever we dive into that, one of the things that we really spend a lot of time on is helping them to understand that, listen, you know about this person but very soon you're going to actually know this person. You know, before you get married, you know a lot about a person. Once you get married to them, you learn things about who they really are. And uh, the more that you spend time with a person, the more that you uh, spend time with your spouse, you learn more about them. And even after being married for uh, for Tress and I for for over ten years now, and and no doubt for uh, for longer for you guys. I mean, like we, it's easy to um, to get in a rut, but the truth is, is we should constantly be learning and getting to know each other in a greater uh, greater level. We're, what are we doing? We're, we're not just knowing about them, we actually know them. And as we think about this matter of theology, the truth is, is a lot of people can say things about God. They know things about God. But what we want to emphasize tonight as we look about who God is and things, we want to understand um, we want to actually know God, not just, not just understand things about Him. We actually want to know Him. And so as we go through this, we're going to learn about the Lord. We're going to learn about God. But ultimately, the goal is like, like Isaiah here in Isaiah chapter number 6, to actually know God. Isaiah knew about the Lord. He'd had experiences with the Lord. But in Isaiah chapter number 6, Isaiah actually saw the Lord in His glory and who He was and that changed everything for Isaiah. So for a few moments, let's learn about the Lord. So who God is, that's our first point. Who God is. If we're going to understand God, we must understand who he is. What is he composed of? What makes him uh, who he is? First of all, he is holy. He is holy. This is very clear in our passage that we just were looking at. In Isaiah chapter number 6, verse number 3, uh, they, the angels cried out, the, the seraphim cried out, and they said, Holy, 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 thrice holy is the Lord of hosts. In First Peter chapter number 1, 
Verses 15 and 16, the Bible says, But as he which called, hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Holy. Now, what was he saying? He said, listen, you're just like God is holy, that we're supposed to be holy like him. God is holy. In Psalm chapter number 99, verse number 9, says, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. Holy has the idea of being perfectly pure, without spot or blemish. No, no imperfections whatsoever, absolutely perfect. And that's what God is. God is, is holy, thrice holy. He's just perfectly holy. And that's one of the most important attributes of God. And everything that we do in life, we should ask ourselves, is this reflecting the holiness of God? As Christians, oh, we live after salvation. We live uh, by principle. And whenever we think about principle, one of the principle is, is, is this a holy, uh, are we acting in a way that would, would honor a holy God? And that's important for us to remember. Not only is he holy, but he's self-existent. He's self-existent. This is important for us to understand. God does, wasn't created. He, he just is. He just was. The Bible just simply begins in Genesis chapter number 1, verse number 1, with just the understanding that God exists. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And so we, the Bible just, just comes in. It doesn't begin by saying, okay, uh, it, you know, before anything was, God was. It doesn't, it doesn't begin that way. It just, it, the assumption is God always existed. God existed when be the beginning of time was God was already there. John chapter number 5, verse number 26 says, For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. Now what is it saying? It says God has life in himself. It wasn't that God was created. It's not that, that, that God um, was, was born. God has always existed. He is the self-existent one. Exodus 3, 14 as, Isaiah, as the Lord is speaking to Moses out of that burning bush, God says to Moses, I am that I am. Literally saying, I am the existent one. I just am. I just am in existence. Um, what an incredible, powerful thing. Uh, we, we've talked before about uh, God and how he never had a beginning and how that can keep you up at night trying to think about what was he doing in eternity past absolutely crazy just to, to mind-boggling our minds can't be wrapped around it and yet that's who God is he is self-existent he's holy self-existent he is unchangeable unchangeable the Bible tells us in Malachi chapter number three verse number six for I the I am the Lord I change not he says God, God doesn't change. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. The person of God is perfect and unchangeable. God, God doesn't change. He doesn't need to be improved upon. There is nothing to improve upon. God is perfect. And if he doesn't change, then that's a wonderful thing for us because you can mark it down. His promises are still just as true today as the day that they were penned in the scriptures because God is unchangeable. Next, he is eternal. He's eternal. This kind of goes along with him being self-existent, but this is, this is an important part. He's eternal. 1 Timothy chapter number 1, verse 17 says, Now unto the king eternal. 
mortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, he calls him the eternal king. In John chapter number 1, verses 1 and 2, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Uh, again, just that, that self-existence, that, that eternality of God, that he was there at the beginning of time. Psalm 90, interesting to think that time had a beginning, but God did not. Uh, Psalm chapter number 90, verse number 2, uh, says this, Before the mountains were brought, brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. <laughs> uh, there, there is, I mean, he's from everlasting to everlasting. He, he doesn't have a beginning. He's eternal. And in Revelation chapter number 1, verse number 8, we mentioned this as we were talking about Greek last week. He says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Again, as we think about Alpha and Omega, it talks about the Greek alphabet. Alpha being the first letter, Omega being the last letter. He says, listen, I was the beginning, I was the last, I am e eternal. Uh, there, he says, I, which is, which was, and which is to come. He's covering everything right there. He says, listen, I am God, I have always been, and I always will be. Um, you know, it would be amazing to, to travel through time. Uh, if we could create a space spaceship and, and uh, you know, a time machine and, and travel through time and go to different places, there's no doubt some stories in the Bible that maybe we'd look at and say, man, it'd be cool to go back in time and experience some of those things. I know as I'm reading the Bible and looking through things, man, I wonder, I wonder what this was going on. I wonder about this. Or maybe you've studied history and you look back and think, man, there's, there's certain times it's been neat to, to sit in and to be able to listen to that that would be pretty cool um you know and maybe you look forward and think wow you know it'd be neat to to move forward into the future and where, what things are going to be like and and uh, there's so much doubt and questions and things um you know to, to move forward and backwards on on the timeline uh that we have but the truth is this is god isn't confined by a timeline uh, God, God, a timeline is, is something that he created for humanity, but it is not something of himself. It's, it's like we're in a snow globe and he's outside the snow globe. You know, we're in the snow globe and we can see this side and we can look back on this side. But he sees the whole snow globe, globe all at once. Uh, if you went back in time, God, God is there now. If you went forward in time, God is there now. And this plays into the next characteristic of God, which is that he's omnipresent. He's omnipresent. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. In, in Psalm chapter number 139, verses 7 through 10, this is such a powerful passage and uh, a great one to, to go and to reflect on, to, to encourage ourselves with. Um, it, it's, it's such a powerful passage. It says this in Psalm 139, verse 7, Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? I, if I ascend up into the heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, thou, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning, dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there shall thy hand uh, lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. Uh, what, what is the psalmist stressing here? He's just simply saying, God's everywhere. He's omnipresent. He, he's, he's everywhere. But that's not just within our timeline. It's it's. Outside of the timeline, it's God is omnipresent everywhere at all times at this moment, which is, again, mind-blowing. We can't wrap our minds around it. We can't understand it. We can't uh, fully grasp it, but just understanding that God, God is, is 
presently on every spot in every place on the timeline that uh, that exists right now, um, which is just unbelievable. And that one, that's one of the things that makes the next attribute so amazing, and that is he is omniscient. He's omniscient. Omniscient. O-M-N-I-S-C-I-E-N-T. That's, that's a tough one. Omniscient. Uh, it just means that he's all-knowing. He's, he's all-knowing. 1 John 3.20, we see this, for if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and he knoweth all things. In Luke chapter number 6, verse number 8, we find that the people, were, the Pharisees, were thinking thoughts. But it says, but he knew their thoughts, said to the man which had the withered hand, rise up, stand forth in the midst, and he rose and stood forth. He, he knew the thoughts of those that were there. God, God knows every thought. Uh, it's been said before, has, has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? Um, God has never been surprised. God doesn't get surprised by anything. I mean, we, we live our life in a constant state of amazement, surprised by things that happen. You watch the news and you go, oh, I can't believe that that happened. I can't believe this is going on. Your kids do things and you sit there and think, man, I can't believe that they did that. You know, uh, you, know you sit there and you shake your head and, and you wonder, God, maybe he shakes his head at us, I don't know. But, but listen, he, he knows everything. He knows every thought that we'll think. He knows every that will go through our mind. Um, he knows everything that has, everything that will. He knows everything. He knows every problem that's going to happen. He, he's never caught off guard by anything that takes place. God is in every moment throughout history right now, and he's so much bigger than our finite minds can comprehend. And with that in mind, it's the next one. He's omnipotent. He's omnipotent, which simply means he's all-powerful. Yeah, he's, he's, he's all-knowing. He's all powerful. I mean, that's. I mean, it's so clear. And, and sometimes we we can't grasp the. Not sometimes we never we can't grasp the power of God. Matthew nineteen twenty six just says this. But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible. With God all things are possible. And Luke chapter number one, whenever uh, the Lord's speaking to Elizabeth, and, and he says in verse number thirty seven, For with God nothing shall be impossible. God, God is not confined. He's, he's, he's never out of control. God is, is always in control. And he, is, he always has the power to control every situation, and everything that's going on in history. He has so much control that he can allow things to happen that seem like they are out of control. Which is just mind-boggling, you know. I mean, like for us, like we try to control things. When something starts to slip away, like it's toast, you know. We're done, you know. I'm sure, you know, if you're riding a horse, you know, and and uh, you guys would know better than I would, you know. You're you're on the horse, and and you you have control, but all of a sudden the horse decides to do something on its own, and and you're trying to stay in control, but in that moment you're losing control, and and you're trying to get back under control, and before you know it, you're on the ground, and uh, you know that's that's the way to, you know, with with the Lord, he's never out of control. Even in the moments when it seems like everything is falling apart, he's still perfectly in control of everything because God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Next, we see he is perfect. He is perfect. And again, this going back to his, his, his holiness, he's perfect. In Matthew 5, 48, it says, Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Perfect. Uh, he's, he's complete. 
He's complete. And in First John 1, 5, This then is the message which we have heard of Him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. He's completely perfect. There, there is no flaws in Him. He's absolutely flawless. And then next, He is love. He is love. Uh, the only way that we can understand what love is is because it is who God is. First uh, John four eight says, "He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love." And how do what is love? Well, it was demonstrated in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Uh, he gave His sacrifice. God God is the very embodiment of love, and He sh- demonstrates love toward us. Uh, it's such a powerful thing. The only way that we can comprehend what love is is because of the example that God gives to us. Next, He's merciful. He's merciful. We mentioned it the other day in, in church, but in Psalm 136, it says over and over and over again in 26 verses, for his mercy endureth forever. Uh, God is merciful. Uh, the greatest display of that mercy, again, Titus chapter number 3, verses 5 and 6, says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. By the washroom generation, the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. He's, he's merciful, and praise God for a merciful God. But don't miss this last one, because oftentimes we don't, we don't think about this. He is just. He's just. And a lot of times in the world that we live in today, we talk about the love of God. Everybody wants to talk about the mercy and grace of God. But nobody wants to talk about the justness of God. And God is, is perfectly just. He's perfectly righteous. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse number 4 says this, He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment, a God of truth, and without iniquity, just and right is he. What a powerful verse about God and who he is. I like that. He is the rock. His work is perfect. Uh, that's, that's some powerful stuff. In Isaiah 45, verse 21, he says this, Tell ye, and bring them near, yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared from this from, uh, this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord... And there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. It's interesting. An interesting study is who God says that he is. <laughs> you ever want to do an interesting study, go, back, go through the Bible and look at the times where God speaks about himself and, and who he is. And here in Isaiah, he says, I am a just God. I am just a just God and a Savior. <laughs> the, what, a, what a wonderful promise. Um, you know, right there you have the, the great extremes. He says, listen, I am just. You know, I'm, I'm not going to excuse sin. But at the same time, I am a Savior. I'm going to send somebody to pay for your sin. Uh, what a beautiful picture of God's justice and his grace and his mercy all in, within just a couple of verses in Isaiah 45. And Revelation 15.3 says, And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. He is just. With his mercy in view, May we not become like some and forget that while he is a merciful, gracious God, he is also just. He is righteous. That's why Romans chapter number 6, verses 1 and 2 asks the question, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And then it says simply, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? 
He says, listen, we should not be continuing in sin. We should not be continuing in that way. God is still just. He's still righteous. He is still perfect. He's still holy. And because of that, it should dictate our lives in the way that we live. So we see who God is. Let's look next at some of the works of God. The works of God. We can know about him, but it's also vital to understand what it is that he does. We see, first of all, that he creates. He creates. All of Genesis 1 gives the account. We could spend tonight going through and reading all the verses in Genesis 1 as it goes through and talks about all the creation of God. But in Hebrews 11:3 specifically, it says, Through faith, we understand the worlds were framed by the word of God. So that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Um, it's, it's interesting. Uh, the, when it says worlds in Hebrews 11.3, it's literally talking about the planets. Uh, God created all things, created even the planets, with just a spoken word in Hebrews 11.3. In John 1.3, a familiar verse, all things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Uh, in Isaiah chapter number 40, this is a, a powerful verse and. A great one to circle, to write down, to go back and reflect on. Isaiah 40, verses 12 and 13. He says this, Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and meted out heaven with a span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in a scale, and the hills in a balance? Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, hath taught him? It's, it's amazing. It says he measured the, the waters in the hollow of his hand. Uh, sometimes we say that he's got the whole world in his hands. But the Bible says he's got the whole world in his hand. <laughs> he doesn't need both hands. He, just, he can do it in just in one. Um, amazing that God uh, is so powerful. He's got the whole, entire world in just his hand. God is, is so powerful. He created, and now he, he holds it in his hand. Now, what a powerful thing. Not only does he create, but he preserves he preserves. We, we spent the last couple of weeks talking about how God preserves his word, but, but it goes beyond that. God, God not only preserves his word, the Bible goes on and talks about how he preserves his creation that he created. And Nehemiah 9.6 says, Thou, even thou, O Lord, alone, thou hast made the heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth, and all things that are therein, the seas, and all that is therein, and thou preserveth them all. And the host of heaven worshipeth thee. This is important because we talked on Sunday um, in, in Sunday school that, that people, um, some people believe in, in, in deism, which is that God created everything and then he just simply leaves it to do its own thing. You know, he's kind of watching, he's a God that's watching from afar as everything just falls apart. And that's not not the truth at all. In fact, if God did not continue to preserve what he created, everything would fall apart. There wouldn't be the world that we have. The, you, there, the, sometimes it seems like there's chaos, but anything that is perceived chaos for us is control of God um, in, in that moment. God, God is preserving and God is keeping things up. In fact, one day global warming will take place. God says it in the scriptures. He's going to destroy the earth, the earth with fire. <laughs> I mean, that's it's going to be. It's not. It's not going to be a. a uh, it's going to be a sudden rise in temperature. I guess you could say, uh, as as fire falls from heaven and, and burns up the earth. Uh, but listen, it's it's going to be on his time, and nothing that man is going to do is going to be able to stop it. Uh, there's there's no emissions controls that's going to stop uh, what God is going to do one time one day. But listen, until that day, God preserves it. God preserves his creation. He keeps the earth spinning uh, by his grace and by his mercy for us. Uh, so God, God preserves. Next, he provides. He provides. 
This is a wonderful promise for each and every one of us that God provides. Matthew 6, 8. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for the Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him, the Bible says. In Genesis chapter number 50, verse 20, he says, But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring it to pass, as it is this day to save much people. It was a promise that, that the Bible tells us that he gave to, uh, to Joseph, as Joseph was, was uh, going through all the things that he went through, and he reached the end of his life. His dad had passed away, and his brothers came to him and said, Oh, you're, now you're going to kill us because of all that we did to you. And Joseph looks at him and says, No, 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 don't you understand? God meant it all for good. God took care of everything. And listen, he did it all for a purpose. He did it so that many people could be saved because of this, meaning people could be preserved. God had a purpose for it, and God provided through it. And Matthew chapter number 6, verses 25 through 32, maybe some of the most uh, familiar verses when it comes to this. He says this, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what you shall eat and what you shall drink, nor yet for your body what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body more than raiment? Both the fowl of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are you not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit into a stature? <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, just thinking about it, how, how many of you can just grow just even a little bit? He says, nobody. And why take ye thought for raiment? He says, why, why are you worried about, your, about you know, the clothes on your back? He says, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed as like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which, is, which today is, and tomorrow is cast in the oven, shall not... Shall I not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewith shall be clothed? For all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. You know, in the world that we live in today, we were even talking before uh, class today, just, you know, the prices of gas and the prices of inflation, and everything's just skyrocketing through the roof. And, and it can be so easy to just spend our lives in anxiousness and worry and just just constant fear of what's going to happen. What's going to happen next? You know, what's what are we going to do and how are we going to make it? And all I mean, like, and, and listen, it's it's good to to evaluate the situation to make good decisions based upon the information that we have. But as I heard one preacher say, worry is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do all day and gets you nowhere. And that's the truth, is in our life, we spend our lives oftentimes worrying about things that are out of our control, when the truth of the matter is, is God is the one that's in control, and God says, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't you think, he says, if I, if, if I care about a flower in a field, and I care about a bird in the air, he says, don't, don't you think I care about you? This would be great verses to take and to, to write down, put on the refrigerator, and, and uh, maybe just put, take these verses and put them on the TV instead of watching the news, you know. And, uh, you know, they would help us with, some of, our, with uh, some of our worry and some of our anxiousness. God knows our needs even before we do, and we can trust them to him. So we see that he provides, and the next, he elects. He elects. Now, this is, this is an interesting one. We're going to spend a little bit of time here, and I think this is important for us to, to understand. He elects, the Bible says. You can flip over to Ephesians chapter number 1, and uh, we'll, we'll be here for a little bit, and then we'll, we'll finish up tonight uh, back over in uh, Isaiah. But Ephesians chapter number 1. Ephesians 1. We find that he elects. When you find election or chosen in the Bible, 
it can be referring to a couple different things. And just as always, the key to understanding is found in the context. Okay, so in the context that surrounds it. Sometimes, whenever we find the word elect or election or chosen in the Bible, it's referring to Israel. Sometimes it's referring to those that are saved. And to understand which it's talking about, you have to study the context and the Bible within its context. In Ephesians chapter number 1, verse number 4, we find one of these situations. It says this, According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now, if we were to read that verse by itself and pull it out of context, it would be easy to look at that and say, What in the world? The Bible tells us that he has chosen some people before the foundation of the world. Um, and there are many that do just that. There are many uh, that would be called Calvinist or Calvinistic or Reformed theology. They're just way smarter than what the Bible is and what, what we are, but, uh, at least that's what they think. Um, that they look and say, listen, according to this, is according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Obviously, that means that God has chosen some people to salvation and he's chosen others to damnation. And uh, while at first we would say, man, that's awful, that's exactly what they would believe. But to understand, we have to put things in context. And so to put it in context, jump back at verse number one. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. So the first question that we can ask is, who is he writing to? Well, according to the Bible... And according to the scripture, he's writing to believers in Ephesus. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us all with spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. So he's speaking to believers. And so we come to verse number four and he says, According as he had chosen us and him before the foundation of the world. And then they stop there. But that's not where the Bible stops. You see, what is it that he chose? It's not that he chose them for salvation. That's not what the Bible says there. He, he's chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. He, he didn't choose some to salvation and some to damnation. He chose those that are saved that they should live holy. That's what the Bible says there. It's not a matter of, of, of being chosen for salvation or elected for, for salvation. They are elect because they are saved not saved because they are elect. This is what the Bible's saying here. He says, listen, I, I want you to live a certain way because you're a saved person. Before the foundation of the world, I have predetermined that you should live a certain way, that you should uh, be holy and without blame before him in love because you're saved, because you're a believer. That's the way believers should live is what he's saying here. So we see that he elects. But what does he elect in Ephesians chapter number 1? He elects the way that believers are supposed to live. Not, he doesn't elect believers to salvation. Next we see that he predestinates. He predestinates. Same passage. In fact, the very next verse. You want to get into to some interesting conversations. Ephesians chapter number 1 is the big one. And oftentimes it's avoided. And I think it's important that we just take it and face it head on and actually understand what the Bible says. Verse number 5. Having predestinated us. Oh boy, here we go. Okay, now we're, now we're getting into another word. Okay, so, so first he, he chose some people before the foundations of the world, not to salvation, 
but how they should live. And they should live without, well, live holy without blame for him and love. He predestinated us. What did he predestine? And to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Oh boy, what are we talking about here? Okay, uh, another time that we find it. But it's, it's another time that's not referring to the predestination of salvation. That's not what the Bible is talking about here. When it, when it talks about the adoption of children by Jesus Christ, it could be talking about the relationship that we have as his children. Okay, Romans chapter number 8, verse number 15 says, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Okay, so, so the adoption, you know, speaking of, of this, you know, that, that okay, we, we have, you know, as, as Christians, as believers, as saints, listen, God has predestinated that we should have this relationship with the Father. I mean, that, that he is our God, that we can cry, Abba, or Daddy, Father. Uh, yes, that, absolutely, that's what that could be re- referring to, and what a sweet, sweet relationship that we can have with God. But the second interpretation here has to do with that word adoption, that the truth is, is in, in the English language means something different than it did in the Greek, and at this time in history. Uh, today, when we think of adoption, we think of somebody that was uh, a child of someone else that has been placed in a home of someone else, and we say, okay, that child was adopted from one family to another is the way we look at it today. But the word adoption in the scriptures meant something very different to that first century Greek person. Now, predominantly Greek, that would be looking at. The biblical adoption is the Greek word huothesia, uh, which is a difficult word. It's H-U-I-O, H-U-I-O-T-H-E-S-I-A. H-U-I-O-T-H-E-S-I-A. To people living in the predominantly Greek and Roman culture of the first century A.D., the word huothesia, can't even say it, would it be, bring to mind something far different. Adoption would bring something far different than uh, what we would think of today. It would make them think of a ceremony called the Ceremony of Toga Vir- Virele. Uh, in the ceremony, a 14-year-old boy uh, would, uh, would have a time where he would receive speeches and challenges from the adult male members of his family. Offerings would be made to their gods on his behalf. And that's what would be taking place. And then the boy would stand in the center of the group, and they would take off his child's garment that he wore, and a new adult man's robe, or a toga, would be placed on him. And this toga virele, or the robe of a man, as it was called, would give him new adult privileges and responsibilities. It was, a, it was a picture of a transition from one stage of life to another. He was adopted from a child to a man. I mean, he was given these, these new responsibilities, these new capabilities, these new abilities that he'd never had before. And according to the scriptures, one day we will be adopted and put on a new robe and receive glorified bodies in Christ. Our salvation will become glorification. 
I mean, praise God, he, he predetermined that we won't remain in these old bodies, but will one day take off this old garment and put on a glorified one, a new body. The next time that we find the word predestination is in verse number 11. The Bible tells us, and we'll just read these verses because they're so good. In Ephesians chapter number uh, 1, verse number 6, it says, To the praise and glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, and whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made us, uh, made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time he might gather together in one all in Christ, both which are in heaven, which are on earth, even in him, and whom also, here it is, whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his will. So what is it that he's predestinated? Well, you have to keep reading verse number 12. He's predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his will. He says, okay, it's according to God's will. What is predestinated? That we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ. How, how can he predestinate somebody to be in Christ when he says right here that you're predestinated to be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ? You already trusted in Christ. I want you to live a certain way. But he doesn't stop there. Because this is, this is so good. I mean, he's predest- we're predestined to live a certain way. But part of that predestination is is that we would know for sure that we are saved. Uh, Verse number 13, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession, and to the praise of his glory. What is he saying there? Those two verses are so powerful. Um, man, we could just spend weeks on it. Okay. In, in whom ye trust, ye also trusted. Okay. You, you put your faith, you, who first trusted in Christ and whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth. Okay. He says, listen, you, you, you put your faith in Christ after you heard the word of the gospel, that the gospel of your salvation and whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. He said, I gave you the Holy Spirit. And he said, the Holy Spirit is the earnest of your inheritance. He says, listen, it's the down payment that I gave you until your inheritance. Until what? Until, until listen, I've predestinated for you that one day you're going to be adopted. You're going to be adopted. What, what is that? You're going to take off that robe and you're going to put on a new robe. Why? And whom after, or excuse me, the earnest of your inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. The Bible tells us that we are bought with a price. God purchased us. So he says, listen, you are sealed with the earnest of the Holy Spirit until the redemption, you're redeemed back, the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. He says, listen, I, I have predestinated that you would live holy. That's, I want you to live to the praise and the glory and the honor of God. That's what I predestinated. That's what I desire for you. Why? 
Because way back when, way back at this point in time, way back whenever you're on the couch, way back whenever you were in that service, you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And listen, one day you are going to be glorified. And that is a wonderful promise. So as we finish up tonight, I'm jumping back to Isaiah chapter number six, just a couple of quick things. Because the last point, how does this affect me? How does this affect me? Well, there's a effect, whichever one you want to put. I think it's A, but I don't remember. So affect me. So how, do, how does this affect me? There, there's a question I've, I've heard preachers say. They say whenever you hear a message, you should ask the question, so what? Now, not like in a, like, you know, uh, a cocky sense, okay? Uh, that, that, not in an irreverent way. It, it's a question, so, so what? So, so what do I do with this now? It's a good question that we should ask. Uh, God, what, what do I do with this? And so as we think about theology, we think about God, so what? what? What do we do with it now? Well, what do these things that we've learned about God challenge me and you to do? Well, first of all, it will change our view. It'll change our view. After Isaiah saw the Lord in verse number five, he said, woe is me. Woe is me. When Isaiah got a clear view of God, it changed the way that he saw himself. In the previous chapter, I think five or six times, Isaiah said, woe unto them, woe unto these people, woe unto them. And he would say something about them and he'd point out their sin. But Isaiah chapter number six, Isaiah got a clear view of God and he said, woe is me. Changes his view. Not only that, but we'll confess our sins. Confess our sins. That's what Isaiah did. Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. And then flew one of the seraphim from unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. What was it? It was, it was a, a, a physical uh, rendition, a physical uh, picture of Isaiah confessing with his mouth. His sin, the Bible tells us that if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God hath raised him from the death. This was a precursor. He's confessing with his mouth his, mouth his sin. And this angel flew and touched his tongue and said, your sins are pure purged. He, Isaiah saw himself. He saw his sin. He confessed it. And the Bible tells us next that we will surrender to God. This should be the natural progression when we get a clear view of who God is and we actually know him. Isaiah, in verse number 8, heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then said I, Here am I, send me. When, when you get things right, when, when Isaiah got things right, he gave everything to God. And here's what's so cool. God has predestinated, predestinated you as a Christian to live your life for his glory. That's his desire. We saw it in Ephesians 1, verse number 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. That should be the purpose of our life. That should be the goal of our life. When we truly get a clear view of God, the more that we see God, the clearer that we see God, the more it should encourage us and push us to live our lives wholly and completely surrendered to him. That should be the direction that we go when we get a clear view of God and we truly not only know about him, but we truly get to know him.
All right. Well, wait, let's pray. And then um, we'll take some time if there's any questions or any comments that we can look at. Father, thank you for tonight and this truths that we find in the scriptures. Thank you um, as we have learned about you tonight. We looked at uh, some things about you. I pray, God, that you'd help us to continue to seek to know you. I pray, God, that some of the verses that we had uh, put in the study tonight would just be um, just kind of that springboard that would lead us down this path of, of getting to know you in a deeper way and getting to know more about you and, and uh, just becoming more passionate about you. God, thank you for being a gracious God, a merciful God, a just God. I pray, God, that we would see all those things in our life. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.